Hello and welcome to the Rethink Missions podcast, stories and lessons from frontier missionaries to unreached people groups. If you are a church planter, aspiring church planter, or missions-minded believer, this podcast will challenge your thinking and encourage your heart. Here is your host, Jeremy Wardlaw. Welcome to today's episode of Rethink Missions Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to hear about the Moy Church Plant, a people group completely isolated from the gospel until very recently, even isolated from civilization. In today's episode, we're going to hear about the sacrifice that is required to reach unreached people groups, especially people like the Moy who are so isolated. But how do you balance sacrifice with sustainability? Because you need to be there for the long haul. And so in today's episode, we're going to be talking to Tim Watley about just that. So Tim, welcome. And maybe you could just start off by painting the scene for us, the context of your church plant. Okay. For us, it started in about 1998 when my wife and I and our kids first arrived in Indonesia. And shortly after getting there, we heard from a airplane pilot that he thought he had spotted a people group amongst the jungle where there's no record of people living. No known records at that point. So to make a longer story short, condense it, we flew out there after quite a process of study and research. We went out by helicopter and I'm sure enough there was a, a people group quite sp- scattered throughout the jungle. And um, after taking some time to pray about it, we determined this is the direction the Lord was leading us to bring them the gospel. But we had to recognize, because it was in the island of Irianjaya, or now it's called Papua, that there was a likelihood of these being cannibals or people that would not take kindly to outsiders dropping in. So we spent a lot of time in prayer. Hmm. And again, to shorten this up, but as we landed... Uh, or went out by helicopter along with, there's multiple organizations working together, including Wycliffe to Heli Mission and New Tribes Mission of Canada at that time. Um, we flew out there and figured the only way we could realistically get in amongst those people was to jump out of a helicopter because of their distance from anywhere accessible. The hike through the jungle would be too far to carry food. So we were talking about people that had no contact with the outside world. They had totally unfamiliar with things that we take so for granted, such as clothing and currency and foods and cooking utensils that we know. They did have a few axes from before the World War II era that had been worn down to short little stubs of metal up where the hand to where the handle was. So we flew out <clears throat> on the day that we decided to be the right timing, and again we had. Uh, heli-, heli mission helicopter pilot with a Wycliffe pilot along with us as well to help. And um, we had planned to bring the three men of our team in there, which would have been Anderson, our Indonesian co-worker, and Steve Crockett, my brother-in-law, and myself. But after um, the weather looked tight, so we decided two of us would have to go out, and we drew straws, the spiritual decision, how to make a who gets okay. to go and who doesn't. 
So yeah. that's still, that's in the Bible, yeah. Yeah, we did this the biblical way. We cast lots or drew straws, and Steve and I got the, the long straws. So we went out, and obviously there was a lot of fear. And as you're approaching a people group that you know once you're in amongst them, there's no way out, a lot of your biblical theories and teachings and decisions you've made really come to a clarity of, is this what God has for us? And as we could, we were approaching some houses, we thought we could land close to them in a garden site. You could see ch- women and children running into the jungle, but hard to remember. But anywhere from 10 to 12 men with their bows and arrows in their hand were running around the garden site right below us as we're approaching. And they started to line up on one side of the jungle. And again, all your biblical theories of reaching the unreached or going into all the world is brought to start clarity. And I, I always think back in the verse there in John, and that was so clear in my mind that day, John Chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And I thought, Lord, this is the reality. If we're going to reach these people, we're going to have to dwell amongst them. But the Lord was killed in the process, ultimately, um, to do that. And the reality that could happen to us. And you have small children at home and your wife there in Indonesia in a city. A lot of the things you have to say, okay, Lord, this is honestly yours. And so as we came in closer and closer, the pilot got to a boat in a helicopter about six feet from the ground, but due to trees and stumps and um, branches, that was as low as he could get and told us we had to jump. And so I had imagined stepping out of the helicopter with a plexiglass door, and if they shot, we stepped back in. But now to jump left us very vulnerable. Once again, Lord, are you ready to do this? Mm-hmm. If I get killed in the process, is that okay? And um, it would make for a great story, I'm sure, but I didn't want to be the object of the writing. But we, we felt the Lord just give us, the, and it was the Lord. And again, we talk about peace that passes understanding. It certainly wasn't that we felt brave, but we did jump. But I remember clearly my knees sh- shaking, and I could feel the hair crawling all over my head. It just felt like everything was on the line. And we're looking at these warriors all standing there with their bows and arrows in hand. Um... The, the the clarity of this was the Lord's work and he would have the final say just stood out so strongly. And as we stood there looking at the warriors, not sure what they would do, I kept my earphones on so I could still talk to the pilot. We left the helicopter door open and figured we could jump six feet if we needed to pretty quickly. And um, so we're looking at the warriors there all lined up. Didn't know who they were. We had no idea the people group name because nobody had contacted them. We had no idea. We knew there wouldn't be a single word in common that we would have. And so we're staring at the warriors and all, and it was totally a God thing. And they've told us since, we have no idea why, but the Lord did this. They all laid their weapons down against a tree or a stump or something close by. And they walked out towards us without their weapons. And I, I figured that was the closest sign we're going to get of a peaceful contact. So through my earphones, I told the pilot, I think it's safe, he could go. So I took my earphones off and threw them in the helicopter and reached up, closed the door. And the way the helicopter went, and if you ever felt like you missed the rapture, that was the feeling <laughs> I had. Like that was our last physical safety net. So the helicopter left for good? For No. He flew up high enough above the tree line and started circling. So we had a radio, and our Wycliffe pilot was with us on the ground, and he carried the radio. And if need be, he could call the helicopter back in. But it was such a deep hole in the jungle in the trees, it would be hard to get in quickly, but... He was ready to do that. So if we call, we were being shot at, he would have come back as quick as he could. Okay. Um, and he stayed circling for about 40 minutes until we felt it was a clear contact, which we're not there yet, but we did survive. 
And um, so he circled, and then eventually we gave him the go-ahead to go back and get the rest of the team, Anderson, and my dad was visiting at the time. <clears throat> so the Warriors are walking towards us, and they put their fingers out in a way that we'd seen other tribes greet, and it's where you snap your knuckles together. That So snap knuckles, and they're greeting. And we'd seen the snapping, so we knew what to do with the response with our fingers. And... Um, but the words out of their mouth, I feel, were prepared for that language at the Tower of Babel. Because we were scared. And Lord, are you in this? And are we doing the right thing? And are we going to be shot? Is this an ambush? Can we trust you, God, with our lives? And um, the greeting out of their mouth was a very short one word. And it simply was Abba. And then they said it repeatedly, Abba, Abba, Abba. So we respond with Abba. But as soon as I heard that, I remember looking up at the sky and just thinking, seriously, God? Like that was... That's the Greek word for daddy. It's what Jesus refers to as father. And immediately put our attention on our God is in this and he's in control and he has a plan. Abba's here. And that in their language, Abba does not mean daddy or father. In fact, it's a very, it would seem a very coarse. It refers to <laughs> when you go to the bathroom, what you leave behind. And, um, but in their mind, they're saying, you can trust me. Even if I know where you go to the bathroom, I won't curse you or do sorcery on you. So they don't really think about it. It's just a term they use, but it is very coarse. They're very coarse, crash people. And um, But they were their greeting is Abba. So it's all we knew is our first word in the language. We said it back, and all of us were saying Abba, Abba, Abba as fast as we could. And the Lord had this work out very, very well. And the contact went very safely, very good. We felt we had, they were nervous. To, we, they did not bite us into their homes for a few days. We slept out on the jungle floor. And they went home in the evenings. And we spent three weeks with them that first week. was learning their language, learning as much as we could. And starting from zero. Abba was our first word. And I remember so clearly one day, about the second or third day in, a man we hadn't seen came down I went to get my camera to see if I get a picture and I was pulling my camera out and he, he made a comment he said Kase Mambao and as he said that it sounded like he was saying what is that and that would be our first phrase our first usable what we would call a PE or practical expression so I quickly wrote down Kase Mambao and um, it worked I went out by this time we gleaned that rock was Oma and tree was Pia and house was May and man was May which is a different word and sounds different to them so we started to ask people I pick up a rock and a new individual say Kase Mambo and we got an answer and so that was the beginning we went from that it took us four years to get the point of fluency where we could start teaching not that you even feel fluent at that stage but you can speak you can share at a heart level we felt the Lord had us ready to start teaching so that was our context of how it started there. And the story goes on much longer. My wife got sick. We had to leave. We made some trips in and out. But the gospel moved forward. Our team continued, started teaching in 2005. And um, today there's a growing, thriving church amongst the Moy. And that's the they call themselves the Moy People Groups. So that's what we refer to them, M-O-I. And um, God has done an amazing thing. Actually, that was in 2000, the first contact. And today, 19 years later... They have sent their first three missionaries out to be trained in a similar context as what we do today here at Ethnos, but in Indonesia, and they love to see their own people go and reach others that are unreached. That's unbelievable. 19 years later. So mm -hmm. this is a, a baby church, this really. This is a baby church. They just lost, I don't know for sure, but three believers were just killed for sure. 
well, let me rephrase it. Five were killed in a boat that capsized just this week or last weekend. And um, one of the lady, the lady was the, my sister's main translation helper. Love, deep love and walk with the Lord. Her baby was drowned as well. And her husband, who's been growing spiritually, uh, my brother-in-law's been meeting with him regularly and just starting to really thrive spiritually. And then two others, I don't know who they were, but five were just drowned. And yet, Challenges continue to press on, and the church is pressing on, but it's not without challenge. Hmm. I mean, they're still in their environment mm-hmm, and ecosystem, mm-hmm. and it's yep, yep. harsh survival context. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. So today there's a church there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how many believers? I don't know. I had heard, this is a few years ago, one of our team felt that there's probably a third of the entire tribe were believers in the Lord. Now, it's not a big tribe. We don't even know their numbers yet. 1,500, 2,500, we don't know. But it's probably it's hard to say how many. And they, they go so deep into the jungle. There's many we have not met yet. But their own people are going, and many of them are getting saved as the Moy are going out and teaching their own people Wow. As well. So it is growing, spreading. Um. Many that have remained very faithful. Some have got taken up with fi- money. The government's coming in and handing out money by the box load. The gold industry has hit the tribe. There's a lot of gold there. There's always distractions, yet amazing how many have stayed faithful and walked strong. But there have been some that have gotten taken up with the cares of the world. Mm. Going from absolutely nothing, we arrived. They had no clothing. The men wore a little gourd, and the women had a little bark skirt on, and that was it. And they'd never seen clothing. Our jumping out with all this clothing, everything was fascinating to them. As they were fascinating to us, we were fascinating to them. <laughs> Found out later, we thought they stunk, they thought we stunk. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how it is often, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Wow, what a neat story. So today there's a church there, and there's a Bible mm-hmm. being translated in the yes. process. Much of the New Testament is finished. Steve just finished a week or two ago the rough draft of the whole New Testament and um, good portions of the Old Testament. So I he'll never give exactly, but I'm guessing he's around 70%, 80% finished wow. of the New Testament. And we like to see Genesis, Exodus, and quite a number of other Old Testament passages right, translated. Right. All right. So you have a lot of experience right from a situation where, you know, not just unreached with the gospel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but very isolated. Yes. And uh, today there's a church and you were involved in seeing that process. Um, can you give us some lessons, some advice for people like myself who haven't been there yet or on the front end of our ministries and um, are just wanting some advice about what it takes to reach the unreached? There's a lot of thoughts that go through my mind. If I were to highlight one that I think is one that we need to grapple with before we enter a context like this, it's the area of sacrifice. Sacrifice is something we all know, and of course you're going to have to be willing to sacrifice, but there's a phenomenal amount of tension that has to come with that, that we have to grapple with in considering going into a context that's going to be very different, very difficult, foreign to us, and we're foreigners to the people we're reaching. Um, so I think of sacrifice I can't help but start with the concept that we are bought with a price we are bought in a sense by the son um, because the choice that mankind made through Adam and Eve to 
reject and rebel against God. So Christ had to pay a price, he, which was his life, and we're bought with the price. And it tells us we're bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That was a sacrifice he paid. He was willing to put it all on the line. But again, we know he rose again and it carried on. He continues to work. But the, when we're called to bring the gospel, he told us go into all the world right after he had paid that price of giving his own life on the cross. He said, now go tell everybody. And um, that means sacrifice. But what does that mean? Does that mean I'll do whatever all the time? And this is the tension I think everybody needs to grapple with. For example, moving into any people group, reaching even our neighbor in our own country, in our own culture and context, in our own language. There's a level of sacrifice. We need to come to grips with how far am I willing to go. For example, moving to a tribe like the Moy, we had to decide, do we build a house just like them? That would make sense. It's small, maybe 12 feet by 12 feet, maybe 15 foot by 10 foot, but very, very small. The women will sleep in with the pigs on the dirt level with the babies right in the mud. And the men will be on a little platform. Is that the way we want to survive? And usually the men will be in a separate house. The women are in a smaller, less comfortable home. Or do we want to live together as a husband and wife? And do we want to be in a house that's 30 feet by 30 feet? Um, that's, a, that's a sacrifice we have to come to grips with. Surely if we're going to live amongst them and be like them, we would live like them. But that was a sacrifice I knew my family could not survive. Kathy would not do well sleeping in the mud with the pigs, with their children. While I sleep on an elevated platform. I doubt you would do well either. <laughs> and I would not do well either. For sure. So, okay, sacrifice. So we decided to build a, still a small house, but for North American context, but far bigger than their homes. And they would come see our house when new people would arrive. They're like, wow, that's big. But for us to look at being serving in there for many years, I had to think through what is the level of sacrifice that we could survive long term. Do we need a house that's 20? I think our house ended up being, I don't even remember, 18, 20 feet wide, probably 30 feet long, far bigger than theirs. I don't remember. It was quite, and half it was a two-story. They built it on a hill, so the lower half was my office and laundry, and I could meet with the people quietly and learn language. Uh, that worked in that context. So I had to think through sacrifice. At the same time, what could we do long-term? Christ gave his life. I think we always have to be willing to give our life. And yet Christ also lived for 33 years on this earth. And he walked and he talked. He spent time with his disciples. Probably uncomfortable at times, but yet other times he entered a feast. Paul said, I've learned to do with and I've learned to do without. A question we have to ask our hearts as we enter ministry, what will it take for me to quit? Am I willing to give up all comforts, which we need to get to that point? At the same time, how many comforts, if I'm going to be in this long haul, I still need to maintain? We Will Kathy wear a shirt when she's in the tribe? Of course she would, and she did. Um, that was not a sacrifice we were willing to give up or felt that we should give up. And today, most women in the tribe wear shirts, and yet it's still not a modesty issue. Those shirts will come off if the weather gets hot. Yet our wives always kept their shirts on. So they always looked a little different. But that was a level we thought would be unwise to go to the extreme. So you're always having to think that through. It's a, it's a t healthy tension we have to grapple with in serving the Lord amongst people of a different lifestyle and culture. So that tension between sacrifice and sustainability. Mm -hmm. What is, what's going to work? You know, I am, 
I am a product. I am who I am, and、mm-hmm. I know I couldn't survive sleeping on the dirt. And what is right and wrong? The people, the Moy people, are blunt, harsh. They kill. They don't. They were not cannibals, but they kill a lot. Many of them would die. Many there's men that would kill their own brother to take their brother's wife.、Um, yet demanding, and they would yell and demand attention. And yet there's times we had to be very clear with them, letting them know we loved them. And yet I need time with my own children too, and we couldn't sacrifice our own children in the effort to reach them. So there had to be lines we had to draw. And we had to trust the Lord with that. We had to express love clearly, and yet there's a time that my children are my priority right now, and that was hard. It, it all falls under that: how much will I sacrifice my family, quote unquote, to plant a church? There's lines we had to draw and be very comfortable with in doing that. So, on the other side of things, the sort of counting the cost and being willing to give up. What were some of those things that you? You and you, your family had to decide. Hey, this is something that we're gonna give up to reach this this people.、Um, I tended at that point in my life as we entered there. I was a night person. I like to work at night, and I like to sleep in. But we realized quickly when the Moy were around, study was very very difficult, and I could justify taking some time with my kids or my wife or having a meal together and just telling them you're gonna stay out of the house for now. But I couldn't justify telling them to stay away so I could study because that made no sense. So we found what worked best. I found what worked best in my own personal schedule was, and again, this was a change, was to get up at three in the morning so I had time quietly with the Lord because they never came around till six thirty or seven. They were in their homes until the sun was up, so they would come around six thirty seven. So I had, if I had got up at three in the morning, had time with the Lord, then I could have two or three quiet hours to study the language. Process the text we've been gleaning, recording. I could transcribe. I could memorize. I could set up a plan for the that day's language study. And then we could get up as a family around six and have a quiet breakfast before they started really showing up. But then we went to bed at seven thirty. So as I, that was a, in a sense, it's a price. It's a small price, but changed my lifestyle to get up at three and go to bed at seven thirty in the evening, which is more. Seven thirty is when the moi went to bed, and I felt I could do fine on those hours. I still had, at the end of the day, the same amount of hours of sleep, same amount of hours of sleep. So that was a change that we needed to make, and it's a sacrifice. It feels like a small sacrifice, but it is a sacrifice. But it was best for the sake of the ministry to do that and to still love the people, not reject them, and yet clear lines. They got to know that at lunchtime, for about twelve to one. I felt that was a period I really need to focus on my kids. We need to connect as a family. My wife had been homeschooling, and the moy they they would sometimes yell and be a little grouchy. I think they understood that, and it became a lifestyle for them. And yet, if somebody showed up after a long hike and they rushed on our porch at twelve thirty and they demanded talking, we would stop and invite them in or talk with them. But we tried to maintain an hour in the middle of the day with our kids as a family. And then they knew they had me the rest of the day. Sundays, I always mowed my lawn on the Sundays. We had a weed whacker. Eventually, got a mower because it worked better.、And、the reason I got a little more yard was small, but I could mow it and mow it and mow it for an hour because that was the one time during the day I could get peace and quiet. So I wear earphones, run my mower, and it seemed like as long as my mower was running, they would respect that was my time. And they <laughs> would sit until. So I took an hour every Sunday afternoon to mow the lawn. 
But in a sense, that was my quiet hour of the week that I could look forward to during the daylight hours, and there nobody would interrupt. I just learned ignore anybody trying to get my attention while I mow my lawn Sunday afternoon. If you needed some extra time, you'd just go around with scissors and <laughs> we'd mow it again. <laughs> I'd lower Clip one notch each and blade of grass. <laughs> But you couldn't use scissors. They weren't loud enough. The mower's loud enough. I could act like I don't hear them. Or oh, okay. See them. The motor was the key part. That was the distractor that we needed. So it's little things you would do. Right. Um, I know my. I don't do well sitting at a desk. So typically I had about seven hours of language study in by lunch. In the afternoon I could go take my kids with the people, help them in the gardens. We might hunt, sit and visit while my wife got some quiet study time in. Okay. So we found that was, again, a, we had to change up our lifestyle. But it worked. And it worked well. Um, just finding those guidelines, those standards that work within the context, love these people, and yet still love my family too. And reach out to the family, reach out to the people. Little guidelines that helped us immensely. And really is quite doable. Okay. So you're saying this is easy and simple, not a big sacrifice. I mean, but that's every day, mm-hmm. waking up at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big deal on the. For me, <laughs> as I uh, picture adjusting my life by that, yeah. that drastically, right? So what that is a challenge to, um, to me, yeah. So what? How long did it take you to kind of discover we gotta adjust our schedule by, you know, let's say you woke up at six, typically by like three hours. I'm waking up at three in the morning going to bed at 7.30. How long did it take you to... Oh, that's a hard <clears throat> question to answer. I don't remember. I would say it was the first six months was a lot of learning, trying to figure what works. Right. Part of it was sitting with our teammate, Steven Anderson. I think a lot of it was us guys together discussing how do we make this work. They decided for them it worked best to get up at 4. And if I wasn't up at three, I always that day, hey, you weren't up when we woke up. And we were all holding each other accountable. I'd see their lights pop on at four. And they should see mine on when they get up. But Steve would often, usually or maybe always, study well into the afternoon. He put in more hours than I could handle. To me, nine, nine and a half was my max. Steve was shooting for higher than that. And um, so we help, held each other accountable. We worked together on what works. I, I would call it much of a team effort. But it probably took us six months to a year to really arrive at an effective working schedule. Right. But you would talk to each other and say, hey, how how many mm-hmm. hours this week? Mm-hmm. And Oh, yeah. We knew we kept each other updated. We shared our timesheets between us, how we were doing. It wasn't to show off, it, but it was accountability. And if I'm slacking, I want them to be able to challenge me on it. I, I had a personal goal of ni- 45 hours a week. I knew it takes 6,000 hours to learn a language, give or take. So I always had that 6,000 as... <laughs> I set up my own timesheet system. I made up, well, we all did our own, but with... Um, An Excel sheet? Excel, or? that's exactly it. And it always tracked how many hours are left and how many hours I had put in to the 6,000 goal. Plus, we had consultants coming in every 1,000 hours or so. So you have clear goals, clear guidelines, and I knew I needed to hit 6,000. Um, if somebody's sick in the family, it might, but you try not to be distracted. You try to stay focused and yet still meet the needs of the family too. A question we have to ask ourselves is what's it going to take to get us to quit? Is my personal privacy, there's a book written called What? Have We No Rights? Are we willing to give our personal rights up? And yet there's standards and guidelines and principles that we have to maintain. 
that's, that's why I refer to it as attention. Mm-hmm. That we have to grant. Sacrifice does not mean you do everything and anything, and there's no limit to your personal. The reality is we're people raised in North America, and we're used to food. We're used to fairly regular amounts of food. So we had to make sure we flew in enough food on the helicopter. Once a month, the helicopter would come that we can maintain a healthy diet. We can't eat like the people and eat once a day or every two days or gorge like crazy when they do get food. That was, I just knew for us to remain healthy, we had to eat differently. And yet when they came around, they would offer us a sweet potato. We would give them rice in exchange. And we loved their foods. But I couldn't have lived just on sweet potato and a wild pig every couple of weeks. <laughs> it just mm-hmm. wouldn't work. Right. So you had to sort of function within the reality that you are a limited human being. That's right. And as much as you want to sacrifice and you're willing to, you are who you are. That's right. And you you have to function within that reality. Yeah. Tough tough tension. And you're always asking the Lord for guidance in that. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for the advice and the encouragement. Um, What are some things that you see young missionaries or uh, those who are wanting to go out, um, some things that they can do right now, today, to be preparing themselves for the task of reaching the unreached? It's an excellent question. The first thought comes to mind is the verse in John 15, I believe, verse 5, where he says, Without me, you can do nothing. Get in the habit and never let it change that you live in total dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. I feel like we can fall into coast mode or we can, things get busy and hard and tough and we suddenly look back and we have kind of let our relationship with the Lord slide. Uh, I know there's times things happen, that's okay. But a regular commitment to be in His Word and in prayer, looking to the Lord, because apart from that, we'll, we'll flounder for a while. We might even look good for a while to the outside world. But things start to shrivel up and die on the inside, and we don't last long. If we want to maintain longevity in ministry, we must have a habit of regular, committed dependence on our Lord. I, I just think there's nothing more vital um, if we want to serve our Lord. So if I were to say one thing, never forget that phrase, without me you can do nothing, referring mm. to our Lord. I'd put that at the top of any chart, the most important lesson. Mm. And it's so easy to trust our routine or our teammate or spouse and to to put trust in them and realize only after things go south that, Oh man, I've been putting my trust in things yeah. that are not God and they're coming up short. I'm shaking my head emphatically. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, it's because it's what I do. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much. It's been so good to have you on and sharing your story and some lessons. And thank you for the opportunity. To those who are out there in the middle of Wherever you're at, we pray for you. We think of you. And to those of you who are at home um, in serving in your local church, you also have the opportunity to be willing to sacrifice, but not sacrifice your family 
um, function within that tension, I guess, would be the, the lesson to pass on. You've been listening to the Rethink Missions podcast. For more information and episodes, go to wmissions.com. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review and subscribe 